Well, if you have your Bible, would you stand with me one last time? We're going to go to the word of the Lord. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have it uh, on the screen for you as well. And we're going to be in Luke 5. And we're going to look at a very familiar passage of Scripture. Jesus healing and forgiving. So we're going to look at starting in uh, chapter 5, verse 17, and we're going to go all the way down to verse number 26. This is what the word of the Lord says to us today. On one of those days while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem. And the Lord's power to heal was in him. Just then some men came carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof, tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk. But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God. And they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. Pray one last time. Father, you are an incredible, amazing God, and we really can't worship you enough. Father, we thank you that with all our hearts, with all our minds and souls and strength, we can give you praise. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to this passage of Scripture today, that you would challenge us and change us and transform us, Lord. I pray that you would bless our church, Lord. I pray that we would see a revival of evangelism, a revival of people coming to faith in Christ, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would use us for your glory. It's in Christ's name. Amen. You be seated. So I pray that you've gotten one of these and that you've been praying through uh, for your one, uh, praying and asking God that he would touch the heart of your one, that they may come to faith in Christ. Can I tell you something? Prayer is powerful because last week, and this is not even my introduction, so I'm not even starting the sermon yet, so don't start the clock. Although we don't have a clock, I'm just going to talk to y'all for a second. So last week, we started the series, Who's Your One? And remember we preached and we talked about, you know, man, it could be a family member, it could be a neighbor, it could be somebody. And I said, Lord, I know one person I've been praying for and asking, and I have been really intentional about it. And I said, Lord, I want to pray for this person to come to know Jesus. Like, I really do. I really want them to come to know Jesus because this person lives in my house. And last Sunday, I was so convicted. See, that's the thing. i got to come under the authority of the scripture as well. I said, Lord, I need to be praying more for my one. And sure enough, praying and praying and praying. And the other day, my seven-year-old came to me and said, you know, I want to follow Jesus as my Savior. And let me tell you something. If I never am successful in any kind of way, 
if this building is never filled, if we're never making and breaking grounds and all these things, if people, nobody knows me. But let me tell you something. My children know Jesus Christ. And I'm able to disciple them. So let me tell you, if you're not praying for your one, and if one of those is your children, you just need to be praying. I'm just excited. Like, I'm just taking my time because here's the thing. I get to baptize another one of my children. This is a great thing, man. And I'm, we're going to share another story of another young man who's been coming to the church. We're going to share it next week. Who he prayed for his one, and his one got saved in the same week. What if revival breaks out among us? Y'all know folks got their thing going on and let them have their thing going on. What if we have something happening right up in here? Where revival breaks out to the point to where folks are just getting saved left and right. And here's the thing. We can't take any credit for it. It's all the Lord. Hey, man, I'm going to get off that because I can preach a whole other message on that. But it's good, man. So I'm looking forward to him making his public. Brayden, come on, man. I'm proud of you, man. So awesome. Praise God. So good. You know, for those of us who have kids and grandkids, see, I even cry. Ain't that good? Praise God. <laughs> for those of us who have grandkids, those of us who are aunts, uncles, all those kind of things, you know what it means to be involved in a child's life. You know what it means to actually be on the go with them as well. In fact, when you have multiple kids and they do multiple things, sometimes it's hard to kind of keep it all together. And, and you're trying to get this one to that way and this one to this way. And for some of us who are parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles, you know what it's like to have to get a child or a person one place to the next. I remember when I first started learning how to drive, the one person I had to drive around all the time was my great-grandmother. And I thought when I got my license, it meant freedom. No, it actually meant bondage. <laughs> because I had to do everything my mom said, and then she couldn't be late anywhere, especially to a doctor's appointment, to wait three, four hours to be seen by the doctor. But here's the thing, we know what it means to get someone from point A to point B. We know what it means to get somewhere, to get someone somewhere where they needed to be urgently. We have to get them there. We have to make sure they get in the car. We have to make sure we're going that direction. And what we see in this story are three friends, those who have a heart to get their friend to where they need it to be which is the most important appointment they ever had, which to, was to meet with Jesus. And so we see, even in this next part of who's your one, that God is the one, Jesus is the one who heals and saves and sets free. And so here's the thing, we have to bring others to him. We have to get others to him. When we think of our one, the question for us, are we willing to go that extra mile? Are we willing to go with them on that extra journey that it may actually take time for them to come to faith in Christ? That it may not happen overnight. It may mean you pray with them and you walk with them and you reach out to them over and over and over and allow the Spirit of God to do what only he can do because it is not us who saves, it is Christ who saves. The first thing we see in this passage of Scripture is that the Lord has the power to heal. He has the power to heal. In this account, we have several characters that tie into the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing. We have Jesus, we have the Pharisees, we have the crowd, and then we have the paralyzed man and friends. We have almost a very much a drama kind of unfolding before our eyes. All these folks playing into the bigger picture of what Jesus is going to do. The first thing we see here is Jesus teaching. 
Remember last week we talked about how Jesus began his ministry teaching and preaching the kingdom of God, calling men and women to faith and trust, repentance to turn for the kingdom of God is at hand. We see there him pointing a, the new way, the way of following after him. Even up to this point, the notoriety of Jesus had spread far and wide. His miracles began to authenticate his message. Every time he would heal someone, every time he would set someone free from demonic influence or uh, demonic possession, it would really authenticate his message that he was preaching. And guess who took note of his working? The Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were one of the religious elite groups of the day. They believed in the resurrection of the dead, but they were devoted to the law. They were devoted to the Old Testament, but so much so, they were even devoted to the laws being put in place by the rabbis at the time. 613 or so laws just were piled on, and they were trying to follow each one of those. And they were students of the law. And then here comes Jesus, whom it said who had authority, but not like the scribes, not like the lawyers of the day or the Pharisees of the day. Jesus comes with a different authority because he stands as God in the flesh. So the Pharisees were very much curious at this point as to who this Jesus was because now folks or people who, who were coming after them started following after Christ. So he's teaching in a village. He's teaching. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began, they came to the meeting. So they were hearing what he was teaching. And they were all there crammed into this room. Mark tells us that the town he was in was called Capernaum. It was even in Capernaum where the apostle Peter lived. And it was here that Jesus healed Peter's mother. This is an amazing thing that is happening. Jesus healed Peter's mother. Then he left and he came back to Capernaum right there on the sea. And now the folks are like, man, I remember when he was here and how he healed Peter's mother. I remember how he was here and he set folks free. And so they're coming, jamming in this house to encounter Jesus. In fact, it tells us in Luke 4, 38 39, it says, after he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked him about her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up immediately and began to serve them. He returns, preaching again the message of the kingdom of God. In fact, they've uncovered Peter's house there in Capernaum, and I was there, and you get to see kind of how the house was and, and, and everything like that, and, and it's there. Peter's house, Jesus is teaching. Now, I'm not sure if this was Peter's house in this account, but it was a huge house. It was somebody who had money because this house was a nice size. The Pharisees, though, desired to destroy Christ. And if they could hear something that could stop his ministry, this is what they wanted to do. Why? The Pharisees knew the law. Their entire job was to protect the law, to protect the holiness of God. So if someone was standing and saying they were speaking on behalf of the Lord, they were getting involved. Secondly, they knew many were coming after Jesus, and their influence was beginning to wane. Yet they visited this meeting at the right time. Why? The Bible tells us this. It says that he was teaching, in the very end part of verse 17, and the Lord's power was there, was in him to heal. 
So we see they visited right at the right moment because Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, he didn't acquire this at some point. No, in the incarnation, this is who he was. But yet we know Jesus even humbled himself. We know that he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what the scripture tells us. And he only followed the very perfect will of the Father. So at this moment in this meeting, the power of God was there to heal. In Acts 10, 38, it says this, You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So God was with Jesus. Jesus is there. The power of God is there to heal. And this entire account is really meant to show, show that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, we can get caught up and say, man, it's about the Pharisees and it's about the paralyzed man. All these folks play into it. But this true account is about who Jesus said he was and that he has indeed the power to heal. That he's the only one with the authority, the only one with the power to heal and set free. That he was indeed God in flesh, come to take away the sins of the world. See, the experts in that room they were telling people that the answer to their problems was the law. Come to the law. Keep the law. Follow the law. Then you'll be made right with God. Jesus comes and says, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That you can't be made right with God through keeping all of these commands because all of us fall short. But the beauty of the gospel is that it's found in Christ alone, that he is and stands as the fulfillment of the law. He stands as the Lamb of God that can take away the curse of sin. And so we see Jesus in this village. And then look at verse 18, because we see the truth that we should lead others to the healer. Look at verse 18. It says, just then some men came carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him. These men knew who Jesus was. They knew that Jesus was the healer. They knew that Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law. And we're called to bring others to the healer as well. Imagine this whole crowd of people clamoring to hear the words of Jesus. We must remember, this is not anything they've experienced before. I mean, I think sometimes we think we've experienced the Lord, and we have. But, I mean, this was Jesus right there, and they were clamoring. They were crowding in this room, and they wanted to actually experienced Jesus because he was doing things that had never experienced before. I can understand this. Jesus was there. He had healed, performed miracles. And maybe for these men, they said, if we get there with our friend, maybe, just maybe, he would heal our friend as well. Why? Because a few times away, he had just healed somebody of leprosy. I'm pretty sure that news spread all over that someone was actually healed of a skin disease that was uncurable? Could it be that these men began to have their faith rise to say that it is possible that we have someone here who is God that could actually heal our friend? So these men set out to go to the house where Jesus was teaching, but they didn't go alone. They brought their friend with them. They put him on a stretcher and carried him. They carried him to meet Jesus. Isn't this a perfect picture of what it should look like in our own lives? When you have experienced the healing power of God, guess what? You want other people to experience it as well. 
I remember when I first became a Christian, and for some of you, you can identify with this when it's so new and so fresh, and you first come to know Jesus, and you recognize that you're forgiven and that you're healed, and you want everybody to know about it. But something begins to happen, and I'll tell you what begins to happen. Life begins to happen. And then it becomes like, you know, not as important anymore. And the feeling of freshness and excitement begins to wane off a little bit. And then he just becomes Jesus. Oh, no, here's the thing. This is why we respond by communion. This is why, in fact, we do communion even more. It brings up refreshing again over and over the reality of the finished work of the cross so that it doesn't get stale. This is why we celebrate. This is why we come again and again to the Lord's table asking the Lord to bring to remembrance afresh again the finished work of Christ. No, they knew who Jesus was and they, their faith began to arose and so they brought their friend and they had a desire to see him healed. Here's a question for you. The person that you're praying for, the one that you have, are you praying and do you desire to see them heal and not broken? See, here's the thing. There's no person on this earth who's broken beyond repair. If you think there's someone who's broken beyond repair, you're limiting the power of the cross. The power of the cross says there's no one that's beyond repair. Even the person you think shouldn't get saved. You have to be careful, Christians, I'm telling you, you got to be careful that we don't fall into some type of kind of self-righteous trap as if certain, certain folks don't deserve salvation. Right. Right. See, I don't care if you don't like the person in the White House. Right. I don't care if you don't like the person who's a city council person. I don't care if you don't like this person or that person. If they are lost, they need to be saved. And it doesn't matter how you personally feel. What matters is, do they need Jesus? See, when you get caught up on the main things, you start asking God for the main things. And when you begin to pray for folks that you don't like, instead of trying to pray some imprecatory prayers as if God rained down fire, you say, Lord, would you save them? Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Because you recognize that if it wouldn't have been the grace of God, you yourself will be sliding down into hell. No, many of us need to have our hearts rechecked again to say, Lord Jesus, do I really care enough about those who don't know Christ to pray for their salvation? You say, I know where I can pray for my enemies because here's the thing. Can I be very transparent for a second? Because for many of us, even for our enemies, we would love to see them in hell. The Christian should never say something as if I would love for you to go to hell. Oh, no. You're telling me you would rather someone it, it, it experience the wrath of God and you yourself escape the wrath of God? What type of love is that? I'll tell you what type of love it is. It's a self-righteousness. No, the true love of God says, Lord, I don't want to see anyone perish because that's your heart as well. Oh, you say, oh, no, Pastor, I, I don't agree with that because, see, you know, you just got to understand them folks that's in the KKK and different stuff like that. They just, they need, no, they need Jesus. See, here's the thing. If you're a Christian, you can't go around hating folk. No, we say, Lord, they need 
restore healing touch. And here's the thing. These men were willing to go there because that's what they pressed through opposition. They pressed through opposition. Look what happened when they got there. They said they got there and they tried to bring him and set him down before him. So they got to the house. It was so packed that they couldn't get in the house. It was there and most of us probably said, oh man, you know what? We'll come back another time. This is what amazes me about some of these healing ministries. If you can heal everybody, just touch everybody. Don't send certain folks away. If you can heal everybody, just go to the hospital and have everybody healed. I've been in those meetings before where they turned people away with cerebral palsy and told them, no, the, the power of God is not here for you. What foolishness. No, they pressed through the opposition. I imagine them walking up and down that house, seeing all those people. And what did they desire? They desired to get their friend to Jesus. And what happened? They couldn't get him there. But instead of going home, instead of going the other way, they pressed on because James 5, 6 says this, 16 says this, the intense prayer of the righteous is very powerful. Now we press forward in the midst of opposition. And often we can face opposition when we're praying for those who need Christ. Maybe they don't respond. Maybe it's not happening as fast as you think. Maybe you say, I've been praying and I've been praying and I've been praying and I've been praying and I've shared the gospel and they've not responded. Continue to press on through the opposition because God is indeed good. You say, well, I invited them to church today and they rejected it. Guess what? Here's the thing. Don't look at it as they're rejecting you. Look at it. They're rejecting Jesus. You keep going. You keep sharing. Yet they found a way. They didn't grow weary in well-doing. They trusted that the Lord indeed could heal. They had faith in this moment, I believe. They had faith that something could happen. And here's the next thing for us. We should expect a miracle. I know it's easy to think that, oh, you know, God doesn't work today because of all the postmodern thinking. But here's the thing. Postmodernism can say God is dead. But guess what? Those same folks that say God is dead taking a whole lot of deep breaths. And it is not in their own strength and power. Oh, no, our God is still alive and our God is still a miracle working God. and can still do the same. He's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we should expect a miracle. Here's a reality. They couldn't get in that way. So since they couldn't find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof. And lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. They went up on this roof and they climbed up, they climbed up there, and, and here they began to creatively begin removing the tiles. This kind of tells us that this was probably a person with money because there wasn't many people back then with tiles on their roof. They begin to remove those tiles one by one. And I wonder what it was like sitting in that house and you heard some creaking up there and some things being moved around and these things are going on. And I'm pretty sure the Pharisees and all those who are in there wondering what's going on. But these men had a mission. They were trying to get their friend to Jesus because they were expecting a miracle. What were these men expecting from the Lord? They knew that if they could just get him to Jesus, he can take care of the rest. So they remove these tiles. And could you picture the scene? They begin to just kind of lower their friend down one by one, almost like a, a rescue vessel. 
They lowered him down one by one, just kind of lowering him on there. And I'm pretty sure some of the folks, now get this. Here's the thing. I want you to really think about the context of this. A man who is paralyzed needs to get in to see Jesus. Folks are all around him, won't let him in to see Jesus. This is the picture of how sometimes we are. We can put up barriers and walls to keep people away from the Lord. But guess what? The ones who the Lord calls, they're going to come to him anyway. I want you to think about this. The folks who were all in that room, you're telling me they didn't hear about the miracles of Jesus and how Jesus healed and set free? But guess what? When you're in a room and you think you got it all together, you're not worried about the folks who don't. Here they are sitting there. Oh, we got it all together. We're, we have all our things. We don't need anything from the Lord. So guess what? No one else needs anything as well. This is the problem in, the, in America right now. Most folks think they're good. Jesus, what do we need Jesus for? But these men understood that they needed the Lord. Their faith was being stirred. And so they lowered him on the stretcher through the rooftops into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. And I love what the scripture says. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, whose faith did he see? Did he see the faith of his friends? No, I believe he saw this man's faith. Because guess what? You're not saved by proxy. You're saved by putting your faith in trust. This man was paralyzed. He couldn't walk. But his heart was being stirred by his faith. And Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Now remember who's in this room. The Pharisees are there. And what are they there for? To pick apart the ministry of Jesus. And look at their response and what he says. Then the scribes and Pharisees began to think to themselves, Who is this man who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God? If you don't know what blasphemies mean, it's simply this, is that they're saying this man is putting himself on par with God. It's funny when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and they say, well, Jesus never said that he was God. The next question you just simply ask them, why did they want to crucify Jesus? Because he proclaimed that he was God. Why in the world were they trying to just go at him at this point? Because he was being blasphemous. He was saying, I can forgive sin. Who can forgive but God alone? That is a great question. Who can forgive but God alone? One writer remarked it this way, if no human being can forgive sins, if God alone can forgive sins, and if Jesus is able to forgive sins, what does this imply? he is God. Jesus knew what they were thinking, the Bible says. He had insight on their thoughts. Now I want you to think about it. Anyone can say your sins are forgiven. In our cultural context, we have people that go and they go and sit in a confessional booth and they have someone that tells them your sins are absolved. That's great to say, but I can tell you your sins are forgiven and it means diddly. You know why? I don't have that authority or power. Because I can't wash away my own sins. How in the world can I wash away yours? I'm only but a man. But Jesus wasn't only a man. He was 100% God and 100% man. Jesus never sinned. He was perfect in every way. And so Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, he brings home the point as we come to a close here. He says, look, 
Your sins are forgiven. He was in the position and the authority to forgive sins. They were right. No one can forgive sins but God alone. This is why God said your sins are forgiven. No one can give the abiding state of forgiveness except God. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as has he removed our transgressions from us. So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he gives this reply. I love this. He says, why are you thinking this in your hearts? So Jesus says this, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? But... So that you may know that the Son of Man, remember, has what? Authority. Who gave him the authority? The Father. He has the authority. On earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. Remember the power of God was there to heal? Remember how his miracles authenticate his message? Now, here's the thing. I want you to think about this. If you're going into a confessional booth and someone tells you your sins are absolved and they say that they've been given authority to do it, then what is the authentication of their miracle? Nothing. Because they have no power to do anything. They can't turn water into wine. They can't turn communion into the blood of Christ. They can't turn the bread into the flesh of Christ. They have nothing. They have zero power. So that means they're just men. Jesus wasn't just a man. He authenticated his miracles. He authenticated his words. And he says, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. Now. He could have said that and nothing happened. And then what would happen? Well, he's just like everyone else. But he's not just like everyone else. That's what makes him different than us. See, he outclasses himself. He ensures that he, he's one of us, but also not one of us. He's God in flesh, but he's man as well. How? He says the son of man. This was the, his favorite term for himself. This was a messianic title showing his identification with those whom he came to save. He had already illustrated his power over demons. He had authority over nature by the catching of the fish even before this. Now he shows he has the authority to forgive sins, and he heals. This outward healing, all it was was simply the outward evidence of an inward healing. What good is a person if they're healed outwardly and not inwardly? Jesus made him inwardly whole. He says, look, your sins are forgiven. And now I'm going to authenticate it and show you because now you're going to be healed miraculously. So Jesus performs two miracles. He heals him inwardly and outwardly. In Luke 5, 31 and 32, it says this. It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. See, it wasn't that he was just paralyzed on the outside. He was broken on the inside as well. And here's the thing, for many of you in this room this morning, and many people even listening to this, you may be looking for God to do something on the outside when God actually wants to transform your inside. If I could just get God to bless me with more money. If I could just get God to take away maybe the sickness in my body. If I could get God to do all these things, then my life would be whole. But the reality is God can transform your heart, within, which then affects everything outwardly as well. Jesus says, look, it's not those who, who think they're healthy. It's those who are sick. I've come for those who are sick. 
I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The question, are you more like the Pharisees or are you like the man on the stretcher? The Pharisees say they didn't need anything. They didn't need a miracle from God. They had it all together. The man on the stretcher was humble. He was one who needed a miracle from God. What was the response of the Pharisees? A rejection of Jesus. A rejection of him. Immediately, verse 25, he got up before them, picked up what he had had, had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God. You would have thought, those who knew the law and those who knew what the, the prophecies were, you would have thought, they would have said, I need to worship Jesus at this moment, but they didn't. I'm going to make a bigger point here. This is why if a ministry, if all they're doing is trying to say, we're going to give you miracles, it's not going to work. These folks saw a miracle and still rejected Jesus. See, it's not in those things. It is in seeing Jesus for who he is as the Savior of the world. The only one that can save us from our sin-sick souls. Yes, God can do miracles. Yes, God is powerful and can do all these things. But he was pointing to something bigger. They hardened their, they hardened their hearts before Jesus. The, the Pharisees did. And look what he said. He said this in John 5, in verse 40. He says, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Talking about the Pharisees. Jesus is still in the business of forgiving and healing. This man in God's sovereignty was healed, inward and outward. And this is how God works. God can still do miracles today. Here's the thing. We may not always see people heal outwardly. And you know what? That's okay. That's all right. God works in his sovereignty as he sees fit because he's God. God is sovereign. I want to tell you something. If you would contract cancer, and nobody wants that. There's some people in the room who's had cancer, and now they've been healed from it, and praise God. What if you received a, a, a notice from the doctor that said you had cancer? But your cancer was not curable. That this is, is no cure for it. This is it. This is it for you. You only have six months to live. You cry, you're praying, and you're asking God to heal your body, and you're asking, and the elders of the church are coming around, they're laying their hands on you, you're praying, we're praying for God to do a miracle. But what if God doesn't? What if God says, in my sovereignty, my will and desire for you is not to be healed at this point? I want you to wrestle with this question. Does it mean that person loses? For many, they would say yes. But for the real follower of Jesus, if they're never healed here, but they have been born again. And they have been given a new life on the inside. And their sin-sick soul has been restored. Can I tell you something? They can die of cancer. Their body can waste away. But they have an immense hope that once they leave this place, they're going to be with Jesus forever and ever. And to top it off, to put the cherry on top, Jesus says, I won't waste your body either. 
Because when it comes time for the resurrection, I'm going to restore that to you as well. So here's the thing. Romans 8 and 28 doesn't just work for everything here. It works for the holistic picture of what God can do in and through our lives for his glory forever. See, for the believer, when you're really in Jesus, there's never really loss. Because to lose your very life is gain anyway. You say, well, I lose my life to sickness. I lose my life to this. You gain it. Your body may fall to the ground. You'll raise it back up again. But here's the thing. Even if he does, let's say you get cancer and he heals you in this moment. Guess what? I still give glory. Now, which one is greater, healing physically or healing spiritually? Oh, let me tell you something. Somebody can walk through these doors and we pray for them to be healed. And God may do it in his sovereignty and goodness and they're healed physically. And leave out this place still dead spiritually. What have we really done? But giving them an extension on life quicker to death. Because the wages of sin are death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. How do we close in this? How do we close on this? Because here's the thing. I want you to see the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is this. He holds you and sustains you by his healing touch and his power and his hand. And guess what? We want to bring others to know this as well. You say, well, those men in that story who lowered their friend down, they're different. I mean, that's not me. That's not something I can do. I can never walk somebody to know Jesus. But if you had a family member or friend or a relative who was dying, if you had a family, friend, or a relative, or a child who was dying, you telling me you wouldn't do everything in your power to get them the help they need? But many of us don't, need, don't think anyone needs any healing anyway. You want to know why? Because most of us think everybody's good. When you understand the world is broken, and this is why we have tornadoes and, and racism and all these things because of sin. When you recognize that men and women are lost without a Savior and under the wrath of God, you begin to say, Lord Jesus, I don't know what I need to do, but I need to get them to you. I need to get them to you. Let's not overcomplicate the life that God calls us to. It may be the one around you who needs Jesus. It could be your son. It could be your daughter. It could be any of those people. Let us press forward, pressing through all the obstacles that they may come to know the Savior. I want to move into a time where we respond to what we just heard. First, for the believer. Have you been diligent praying for your one? Second, have you told them about the life-saving message of Christ? Do you really see the need that they have? That they would come to know Christ. But for those who are not in Christ, maybe you feel just like this man on that mat. You're broken. And you know you need some folks to carry you. You just don't know where to turn. But maybe God has you here in this moment to hear your where to turn. And it's to turn to Christ. That he is the sufficient Savior. 
place your faith and trust in him. Allow him to heal you of your brokenness and make you whole. He says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Can we go to the Lord in prayer before we respond in communion? If you need to place your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, if you want to hear him say your sins are forgiven, that he separated them as far as the east is from the west, that he doesn't bring them back up, that his goodness and his graciousness extends to you, that you can't earn his love, you can't work for it, it's freely given. You don't have to come down here, you don't have to go this place or that place, you can respond right where you are. You can cry out and say, Jesus, save me. I'm but a paralyzed, broken person, and you know how broken I am. And I need you to heal me. Even if I'm never healed physically, I want to be healed and whole spiritually. God has the power to do all things. And you're not too far outside of his reach. If you need to respond and place your faith and trust in Jesus before we respond in communion, just ask the Lord to forgive you. Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry. Lord, save me. Talk to him. He'll receive you into himself. For those of us who are followers of Christ, we've placed our faith and trust in him. We've been healed. We want to be like the people who get out of the way and bring others to him. But one of the best things we can do is be reminded afresh of the finished work of Jesus. To remember how he saved us. As we move into this time of communion, would you take a few moments just to reflect on when you placed your faith and trust in Christ? To reflect on the cross and his blood that's poured out, that's been poured out for us. His body that was broken for us. Given freely. Maybe you feel dry this morning in your love for Jesus. Run back to the cross. Run back and remind yourself afresh of what he's done. Father, we thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ. That, Lord, as we come to the table to respond, we would bring back to remembrance what Jesus has done for us. And that we would be walking in both humility and 
joy. I'm going to ask those who are helping with communion to come.